Hello again. Having been away for three months, I find I'm a little nervous to be back in the pulpit. And I want to say that sabbatical is a humbling experience. On the one hand, you're really tired and you look so forward to an opportunity to get away and to rest and to recover from seven years of hard work. And on the other hand, you leave and you find out pretty quickly that the work of God goes on swimmingly without you. <laughs> Sabbatical is a discipline of surrender and a healthy ego check. And at any rate, I do want to thank you for supporting uh, my sabbatical. Uh, Tim and I had a wonderful, wonderful time away, and it was pure gift. So thank you. Let us join together in prayer. God, you heap your love upon us like a parent providing for a family's needs embracing a child with tenderness. Give us enough trust to live secure in your love and to share it freely with others in open-handed confidence that your grace will never run out. Amen. Today's story is probably my favorite story in all of scripture. My college mentor told me that if I wanted to know God, I needed to start in the book of Exodus, which was a real curveball. Exodus is a book not many of us read carefully. It is filled with wild and complicated stories, family stories about a liberating and patient God and the up and down relationship God has with a stiff-necked people whom God delivered from Egypt. The book of Exodus I've found also serves as a manual for spiritual leaders who like Moses have been called beyond their capabilities, leaders who get exhausted and frustrated and sometimes are entirely fed up with the people. But at the end of the day, like Moses, the same spiritual leaders are devoted to the community God entrusted to them. So today's story invites us to use our imaginations to pay close attention to what's happening inside the scene. And if we read this story with open minds and open hearts, it will cause us to reconsider or recast our notions about who we think God is and who we, what we think God does or doesn't do. Because we might feel we have God all figured out. But as Walter Brueggemann consistently asks his readers to do, if this was the only story we had in our possession, what would it tell us about God? What would surprise us? What would we learn about ourselves? 
And this story definitely asks or poses more theological questions than it gives answers. Here's the familiar scene. We're especially familiar with the story of the golden calf. Moses has been on Mount Sinai for 40 days in the presence of God. And God is having Moses write down the law on the tablets, the stone tablets, to deliver to the people. And even though the people had been left in good care with Moses' brother Aaron, and they'd been warned that Moses would be away for about 40 days, they start getting antsy and ornery. And they grouse and they interrogate Aaron about Moses who brought them out of Egypt and into the wilderness to die. They say, Moses is God, not here, not, note here, not their God, Moses is God, has tricked us. He has led us into the wilderness and left us to die. And Aaron cracks under peer pressure and asks for all their gold and melts every bit of it and fashions it into what they want, a visible sign of an invisible God. And those in charge present a golden calf to the people and they say, oh Israel, here's your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And as an homage to their new golden God, the people feast and carouse. They rise early, offer burnt and peace offerings to the calf, eat more, drink more, and revel, the text says. They revel so loudly that the sound carries up the mountain and into the ears of God. And God is not well pleased. God is furious. Go down, Moses, God says. Go down, your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from my commandments. I have seen these people, how stiff-necked they are. Now leave me alone and let me, let my anger burn hot against them that I may consume them. And of you, I will make a great nation. Tempting, if you were Moses. In other words, God says, I'm so done with these people and their kvetching. I'm going to start over, just you and me. And Moses takes a deep breath. This, after all, is the God with whom he'd been to Hades and back. The God with whom he built a relationship, a close friendship over the years. The God with whom he had forged trust through their shared suffering. Like with any close friend who is behaving out of character, Moses care fronts God. If I may be so bold, he says, why does your wrath burn against your people, your people whom you brought out of Egypt with a great and mighty hand. And then Moses appeals, I think, a little to God's ego. What will the Egyptians say? That you brought them out here to kill them with evil intent? Moses says again, 
if I may be so bold, turn from your fierce anger. Change your mind and do not bring wrath upon your people. Remember your covenant. Remember the promise you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. A promise for generations of offspring. This interaction is actually pretty hilarious. So don't miss it. Because God says they're your people whom you brought out of Egypt. And Moses corrects him and says, "Hmm, they're actually your people whom you brought out of Egypt. It's like two parents arguing, right? Your child, not my child, comes from your side. So the radical point in in this exchange lies with Moses giving God three imperatives. Change your mind. Turn from your anger, which literally means repent, and remember your promise. And the upshot is, God changes God's mind. God relents of the punishment God intended to bring upon the people, the text says. Why? This turn in the narrative reflects the relational nature of this biblical God. One that runs counter to many of our our assumptions about God being thoroughly distant from us, like Aristotle's unmoved mover. But in this story, God is quite moved by Moses. God is quite connected to Moses. In the Presbyterian Book of Common Worship, the introduction to the Lord's Prayer gives language something like this. Now, as our Savior Jesus Christ has taught us, we are bold to say. It takes boldness to pray like Moses. It takes guts to pray this way. Moses is no perfunctory prayer. Moses is asking God to be God. You're not behaving like the God I know. Prayer is not for the timid. Prayer calls us to bold speech because our relationship with God is built upon love and perfect love casts out fear. In a real friendship, we feel safe enough to speak our minds and to share our hearts. The writer Ted Loder, a great writer of prayers, wrote this. Empower me to be a bold participant rather than a timid saint in waiting. And in this story, God allows Moses to be a bold participant on behalf of the people's future. Moses' intercession on behalf of the people appeals to God's sense of justice and compassion. God didn't choose someone who was an ingratiating yes man to be a co-conspirator. God chose Moses, a person with guts, with chutzpah, 
who is willing to take risks and who has a strong enough trust in God to challenge God. When our daughter Sophie was a toddler, she learned the word prayer. And every time she heard the word prayer, she would put her hands together and say, blah, 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 blah. And I think if we're honest, prayer might feel as worthwhile as saying blah, 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 blah. And I'm not suggesting that God is manipulated by our words, and I'm not suggesting that prayer is about getting what we want because we want it or we ask for it. Prayer reflects a safe relationship. And in God's own freedom, as a loving parent who wants the best for their child, God desires genuine, honest, and authentic connection with us. And God invites us to come just as we are. We don't have to use special language. We don't have to be spiritual enough. Knowing God like a trusted friend allows us to speak candidly and from the heart. And we listen to God, and God listens to us. Now, I know this might be difficult for some of you, for many of us, to take in. Maybe you've never thought about it this way. But let's stay with this story and let this story do its work in us. Now, if I may be so bold, I'd like to submit what I think is at the heart of this story. I believe the extent to which we are able to speak boldly to God, the Almighty, is the extent to which we will be empowered to speak boldly to human authorities. If we can call out God, we're more likely to call out human powers when we see injustice. But if we're fearful to speak truth to God, we might be fearful to speak truth to power in the here and now. I'm also convinced more and more that we need to be bolder in speaking about our faith into the world. We are too timid. We are afraid we will offend others. But the truth is, Christian language has been co-opted and held captive by those who speak boldly, but with hate and bigotry. And most of the world thinks that Christianity is only the negative that they hear and see in the media. And our work is to complicate and disrupt that narrative. We have to give, we must give other views and perspectives of a Christian faith rooted in love and acceptance and grace and generosity and mercy. Because if we don't, who will? Who gets 
the last word. The time is now. Would that we may be so bold.